And that jarring cacophony tells you you're back with the Power of Three podcast. It's only been 398 days since Doctor Who was last in the telly. And here it is today. It's back. It's Doctor Who. It's the Star Beast. And it's... Well, maybe I'm getting too excited too early. I'm Kenny Smith. I'm going to be joined today by two of my pals. You may know them if you're a regular listener. If you're not a regular listener, then you should be. Go back and listen to episode one, and then you'll join us here. Oh, don't, don't, don't listen to episode one. It's a disgrace. All right, well, go from episode two. And, no, uh, no, go, go to about episode eight or nine. <laughs> okay, and then carry go, on up yeah. to... Today's episode 169, so yeah, carry on and listen to the rest of them. I didn't say read them. Anyway, person who just spoke, you better introduce yourself. Hello, I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. And the person who's not spoken yet, you'd better say hello. Me, I'm so excited. I'm Stevie. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you all. Or hear you. Yeah, I can see you. Did you not yeah. say we had a YouTube channel, Kenny? Yeah, oh, yes. that's, what, that's what Stevie's probably thinking of. He's probably thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got into trouble. We got into trouble last week because I... I kept saying that was, you know, when we did that episode where we reviewed the Dalek, the new Dalek action figures and the new Time Lord action figures, I kept saying that I was holding them up to the camera for the benefit of our YouTube viewers. <laughs> if you don't have a YouTube account, listeners, that was just me being a div. And I had to apologise to someone who actually asked us how to get onto our YouTube channel. I had to apologise to them and say we didn't have it. So, yes, <laughs> but it's a good joke, so we're going to keep doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, boys, are we excited? It's the. 60th anniversary episode part one tonight yes oh oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's very, been a long time coming yeah. anticipation is huge it's very exciting to have Davy and Catherine and everyone else back yeah my, my sort of interest and enthusiasm of Doctor Who has been bubbling away again in anticipation in recent months and stuff so it's yes yeah, it's, it's very exciting I hope everyone else is excited if they're not, um, you go into a YouTube channel and leave a comment telling us why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leave us a video message there. We'd be delighted to hear from you. But today we're going to be turning back the clock to 1970, or to 1980. I keep saying 1970, it's 1980. And of course, a bit more recently as well, because we're going to discuss the other two versions of the Star Beast. To date, Russell T has adapted Doctor Audio stories from Big Finish. He's adapted a Virgin New Adventure. For a TV story, and now he's gone into the land of Marvel as was then, and we're getting the Star Beast by Pat Mills and John Wagner, and illustrated by Dave Gibbons. Now, Stevie, I believe you've not read the original. I have not read the original. I have seen plenty of the artwork. I know, Dave. I know, oh, YouTube <laughs> channel viewer, you can't believe what's happening now. No, I'm afraid I'm not a graphic novel person. Sorry, Dave. I went. Should I just go? Should I just leave? No, it's, yeah. No, it's all. No, it's all. I mean, yeah. I have the greatest admiration for the artwork in these. It's just not something I could ever get into. But when you get adaptions and it's audio, or <laughs> tonight, an adaption that's real. Is that a good word? Yeah, real. That's different. I think graphic novels have their place, and all kudos to those who collect and read and, and watch. Well, if you're in Chateau Steel right now, you'd be surrounded by the bummer, the bummers, the buckers. <laughs> I'm going to move, move the camera slightly for the benefit of Stevie. You, just see, just a few. Oh, of the, I, I see. Yes, yeah, so you, you don't really have that many. many no, not really. To, no. And the ones behind you too. 
yes. Um, Do you have a me... structural engineer on call for your for um, your house? Do you know, I have often thought about that, especially the 40 odd boxes that I've got piled up in the alcove in the kitchen. <laughs> you know, one of these days. One of these days. No comics aren't for everyone, I can appreciate that. But the good thing about the Starbeast is that, you know, irrespective of which format you're experiencing, it's such a strong, solid story. Mm. And I don't think Nights is going to fail. I really don't. I'm, I'm very excited about it. Dave, when did you first discover the Starbeast comic strip? I have a feeling it would have been... I only read a few issues of Doctor Who Weekly when it first came out. I've got a feeling that I probably didn't read the Star Beast round about nine, till about 1990, 1991, when I started collecting back issues of Doctor Who magazine in order to try and have a full set of it. I remember Obelisk Books, which used to be in the Virginia Galleries, which used to be a wonderful place to spend a Saturday afternoon in Glasgow before before it was knocked down. Obelisk Books had a had got a massive collection, and so I just started buying them. And over two or three years. I mean, you know, and at comic marts and all this sort of thing, I would collect them up. So I first read them run about then, but I also remember early mid nineties getting hold of a few issues of the Marvel US reprint. Marvel Comics in America, of course, had reprinted, I believe, um, the Iron Legion and City of the Damned over four issues of Marvel Premiere, I believe. But I think they called it City of the Cursed because Damned was deemed too too um too harsh for the for the the sensitivities of American audiences. The interesting thing, you know, when it was reprinted, when they gave the Doctor his own comic, published via, via Marvel US, when it reprinted all the stuff from the, the British magazine, and um, was that they coloured the beep, they coloured beep the meep in blue. Whereas, you know, so I was a bit surprised when I saw him in the, the promo materials for this new episode that's on tonight, that he was white. I've always just thought of him as blue, because that's how Marvel US presented him in the mid-80s. Can I just mention that, although I hadn't seen any of the graphic stuff until I'd listened to the audio, I assumed he was blue. Interesting. I don't know where I got that from, but that was my assumption. And again, I was quite surprised when I saw a white yeah. version. And then, of course, I went to the graphic novel and I thought, yeah, but I've never seen this before. So, really weird. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the original story was published in black and white. We should say very quickly that um, Marvel Comics in the UK started publishing Doctor Who Weekly in 1979 and the comic strip took a, a real quantum leap because for years it had been in TV comic and even in that period been reprints so it was very much children's stories so this was applying the Marvel Comics sensibility to Doctor Who and revolutionised in a in a comic strip way to be honest the early good first you know five or six years worth of Marvel UK Doctor Who comic strips are just some of the best Doctor Who stories ever. If you've never read them, loads of them are reprinted and still available, so you should totally check them out. Anyway, Kenny, when did you first experience the Star Beast? Yeah, I think I must have read it in a reprint. I'm trying, because I'm sure there was a a reprint of the Iron Legion in the 80s. Is that, yes. I can't remember if it was a summer special, and I'm, I'm pretty sure yeah. Star Beast was in there. And All I think right, that, okay. I'm pretty sure that'd be the first time I encountered it. Maybe that's when I first read it. Then I had that magazine. People still got it. I'm like you. I always assumed that um, Beep was blue. Yeah. It's funny how we sort of we've picked that up, and uh, we have to unlearn what we know. You know nothing. Yeah. Everything listeners, is untrue. Listeners, what colour did you think Beep the Meat was before you saw the promo photos for the the new TV episode? Write in and let us know. We always like to know this. And also, you could send us a video of your favourite colour. And again, we'll post that on our YouTube channel. <laughs> Use crayons, coloured pencils, watercolours. We don't mind poster yeah. paints. If, yeah, 
what you could do, listeners, if you go to the, the inside back cover of this week's edition of Power of Three magazine, uh, a drawing of Be With Me for you to, to colour in. So, if you, you know, if you, <laughs> I've made Kenny laugh. Um, uh, yeah, if you like Kenny cry with laughter, thank you very much. Them, we'll, give, we'll, we'll give you a prize for the best one. <laughs> Yeah, Power of Three magazine available in all good news agents <laughs> and bad ones. Oh my goodness! So let's um, we'll have a quick we'll have a quick discussion about the the comic version, Dave. Mm. I suppose that there's just something about this. It's just got a real quality to it that makes it stand out, doesn't it? Is the fact that it's got the there's a schoolgirl character, there's a schoolboy. He's a bit of a science fiction fan, and we can relate to that as readers. And yeah, it's just that. And then there's the cute alien who we don't expect to be an alien killing machine. I reread it this afternoon and hadn't read it for a few years, and I was really, really impressed by it. Pop Steve Gibbons is a legend, he's very famous, obviously, for collaborating um, on Watchmen with Alan Moore. Watchmen is, I think, frequently misunderstood as a brilliant, brilliant comic. Um, but I was really impressed looking at this. I mean, it stands up so well. It was interesting because, in preparation, I also listened to the Big Finish adaptation again. Um, so it was very interesting with that in mind, reading through the comic strip and, and just sort of going, ooh, some bits, how close some bits were and how some bits were different. It's a fascinating time in the magazine because you've still got the, you've got literally a handful of pages for the comic strip at the start, the, the Doctor comic strip, and then there's a, still a monster backup strip with Absalom Dak, but it's all padded out with um, with Marvel reprints. It's fascinating. It's an, a lovely little time capsule. I'd love to do it, you know, a real deep dive on the um, on the early days of Doctor Who Weekly at one point, try and find out where all the, the reprinted stuff came from. No, it's, it's a cracking story. I mean, um, Dave Gibbons is an excellent storyteller, so it just pops, and it's it was very interesting. I don't want to say too much about the audio adaptation at this point, but with that in mind, I was really surprised at how different they were, but also how faithful it was at the same time. Does that answer your question? Does that make sense? It does make sense. It does make sense. I mean, for me, it's... It's just alive. It's got that sort of season 17 energy to it. It's got that sort of slightly off-the-wall madness. And, of course, we get K-9 in it very briefly, and uh, yeah. then we lose him, which uh, is a interesting. Very, a very small K-9, I believe. Yes. He's, one I'm just one that can be carried. Easily Am carried, right? yes. Yes, easily carried. Yep, and uh, we've also got... Doctor can put him under his arm, he's that small, whereas you normally just have to lump him about by the handles. But yeah, there's, there's it's just, there's so many amazing lines in this. Um, you know, just, uh, I mean, even something as simple as meep, meep. You know, I mean, I, I hear that and I, I think of beep the meep, I don't think of Roadrunner. And uh, the Doctor yeah. reaching out for one of the Rarth Warrior's eyes and saying, maybe this is a light switch. And then there's the, I think it's the start of, uh, where are we? I'm, I'm just flicking through the, the recent compilation, we've got the Doctor saying, you must let us on this bus. The whole future of the galaxy is at stake. And the bus conductor yeah. saying, sorry, mate, no animals allowed in my bus except an elite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, the newsreader who looks very much like Angela Rippon and Sue Lawley, and obviously we'll talk more about that when we talk about the audio version. There's just stuff like, what I really liked about it was the kind of, it has a real kitchen sink sort of feel to it you know Fudge and his mum and his pal Sharon and a sort of very grotty it reminded me of like old episodes of Grange Hill or something in a way yeah or the book tower when they would dramatise the first chapter or something really interesting to encourage you to go and read it 
listeners, the book tour was amazing. If you don't know, it was fronted by Tom Baker and encouraged kids to read. It was glorious. It's the sort of thing that television should still do, but doesn't. Little details, like when they find the meat hiding in the shed, there's like a rusty old watering can and some paint tins. It's just really urban and grotty and really believable. Really down to earth, actually, in a way that a lot of Tom Baker's TV Doctor Who really wasn't. You know, a lot of it was, especially towards the end under Graham Williams and under John Nathan Turner, you didn't really get any Yeti and the Lou type stories. And this is best <laughs> Yeti and the Lou stories, I think. It's, it's really, really good. Yeah, I mean, you can see why Russell's gone for this one because it's very much, it's got one foot in the real world and characters yeah. that we can understand and relate to. And obviously he's picked up on that and we'll obviously we'll find out exactly how he's done it. But um, it's just, I think it's very much a fantastic idea and a great starting point for a TV story. And you can completely understand why he's taken it from this and is doing it. I would say, um, you know, because I don't, I'm not really into the graphic novels, as we've discussed, but when I have picked up stuff, and I, this, it's a silly revelation, but you forget when, especially when you're younger, that people actually write this stuff. You know, you see the drawings, because I do cartoons, I do one-off cartoons. Kenny, you've got a few of them of you, I imagine, mm -hmm. still around. But, you know, when I do a cartoon, I see a person, I've got their persona a wee bit, glasses, head in Kenny's case, and I do, I'm not really thinking about his backstory. So when you're young enough and naive enough, you look at comics and I remember Star Wars and Star Trek, and you look at it and you forget that there's a writer behind there, but there's two types of writer. There's the writer that's been said, you've got to do Star Trek, you've got to do Doctor Who, you've got to do Star Wars, who doesn't understand it. And then there's the writer who absolutely understands it with an artist who absolutely gets the writer. And all of a sudden, in the medium of ink, you've got the makings of a feature film if it's done right. And that's what I get from Starbeast, from all its iterations, from that to audio and where we're heading in a few hours' time. And I think that's important to remember that that team, you get that right and you've got you've got whole pickings of Doctor Who to, to bring to life. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's in, it's interesting, this this story. It's, in some ways, it's it's kind of like, reminds me a little bit of Galaxy 4, in a way, that, you know, you compare the um, the Meep and the Dravins, you know, initially, you, your first impression is that they're going to be the nice and the Wrath Warriors and the, oh, I can't remember what they're called. The Rills. <laughs> the Rills, yeah, this has just popped into my head, this analogy. So it's, it's that similar sort of thing of, not taking things on face value, um, which is quite you know, a sort of good lesson to teach. But it's um, yeah, there as I said already, like back when I was TV saying that the early Doctor magazine comic strips, Doctor Weekly comic strips, they they do Doctor Who a lot better than a heck of a lot of television Doctor Who. I always sort of say how um, Voyager is my favourite Colin Baker story in the, of the eighties because it was just has so much more imagination, and because they can draw it, they don't have to worry about BBC budgets. That's one reason why I'm looking forward to seeing Star Beast on TV tonight because the budget they have for Doctor Who is much bigger comparably probably than it was in the early eighties. So it's gonna be really interesting to see how faithful it is and how much they how well they do certain aspects. Knowing the characters that are in the existing Star Beast and knowing the characters that we're getting tonight and trying to work out how that's gonna work, who's gonna be here, who's gonna be that, who's gonna be that, that's fun as well. Because we might know the story inside out, but pretty sure There'll be elements that are there, but there'll be different elements that we're just not quite prepared for. Absolutely. 
So we've mentioned there, we rather like this. So why don't we speak to one of the co-writers of this? Somebody who's also been on set. We're talking about Pat Mills, comics legend, bit of a dude, written a lot of big <laughs> finish as well, but he's written a couple of big finish. So here we go. Let's have a quick chat with Pat Mills. Uh, well, my name is Pat Mills. Uh, I write um, science fiction comics, uh, some novels, uh, and um, have written um, a great deal of uh, uh, Doctor Who material, Doctor Who uh, comics, and uh, Doctor Who audio plays for Big Finish, and um, one abortive TV script. Uh, Song of the Space Well. So Doctor Who is very close to my heart, and uh, I actually cover um, much of this in um, uh, my forthcoming book, Page Turners, which really focuses on Doctor Who because, um, you know, it highlights the, the challenges, the, the good things and the bad things that, that can happen in the course of, uh, you know, Trying to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> as we all do, as we all do, Pat. Wonderful. Well, yeah. thanks for coming on and having a chat. So let's rewind back to the late 70s, early 80s, and the idea of the Star Beast. Where did that originally come from? Because it's just, having reread the comics and listened to the audio adaptation, it's just that quintessential tapping into what Doctor Who really is about. It's got the, the silliness. It's got the ridiculous monster, which deceives us all, and just a wonderful set setting that we can recognise. Well, again, what I what I covered in uh, in Page Turners on uh, Star Beast, and this is the stuff I can talk about because I I can't talk about some other aspects until after it's been transmitted, uh, and then I can can talk about the other side, but. Actually, what I can share, which uh, may, uh, I don't know, may come as a surprise to your listeners. Let me see. Well, there were two things that inspired uh, Starbeast. One was that um, I used to have a guinea pig as a pet. And uh, if you look at what a, a guinea pig is like, and then you compare it to uh, this uh, alien creature, there, there are considerable similarities there. You know, they're cute, they're fluffy, and so forth. So it was partly inspired by this guinea pig I had, which I was very fond of, uh, and which, uh, as so many pets do, uh, died prematurely, and I think I was quite heartbroken as a kid. And then the other thing, if you like, the darker side of the Star Beast uh, comes through, through with um, my ex-wife, Angela Kincaid, um, worked on, uh, she was um, a birthday card artist and she specialised in producing these big, fluffy, pink and white cute creatures. I mean, they're still around today, but if you go back two or three decades, there's a lot of them. They have big eyes and, you know, they're, they're incredibly fluffy and sweet. And uh, she had to sort of produce them almost on an industrial scale to, to make a living. So you had this whole line of furry creatures waiting to be airbrushed in her studio. And um, I don't remember her having a very positive attitude towards her work. This was, 
it, it, it was work. It's, it's money, and you've got to make a living. But if you're familiar with them, you will know why there's an element of cynicism. I mean, you're talking about cards that could that were sometimes padded, you know, or were like I don't know, three feet high. You know, huge things. Really, kind of indulging that sentimentality, which um, which really didn't strike a chord with her or myself personally. So I remember her being very negative about these um, uh, soft and cute creatures. And I think that found its way into the character of me. It's brilliant because I, I, I mean, it's seminal, it was part of my childhood. Part of me is sort of like thinking, I can't believe that I'm chatting with, I mean, with yourself, you know, having written this and I cannot, you know, the number of times that I must have read Star Beast, you know, during summer holidays, you know, sometimes twice a day, just because, you know, you know, just like summer holidays, wow. you want something to read, and it's just that is that. And it had something that made you come back to it. That yeah. that's that's a great compliment. Thank you very much. I, I there are uh, odd films, TV series, and books where I find myself doing the same thing. It's like they've got something that sticks, and and you have to come back to it. And uh, uh, I know Russell T. Davis and David Tennant said said the same thing. They were both fans of the Star Beast, and um, uh, I don't know whether, I mean, I, I think it's probably fair to say, but you'll, you'll know better than me, that I think the Iron Legion probably had a slightly higher profile. In other words, um, I, I can remember someone saying, oh, you should do a sequel for, for the Iron Legion and in, in comic form, and that never really happened with uh, the Star Beast. I think to a certain degree, because I'd had the final word on it. I mean, once you realize that this cute creature is a monster, where do you go from there? I mean, okay, you can you can extract more from it. But it's not like, say, Judge Death, who endlessly returns. I, I, I think a, a white, fluffy creature may, may have a limited shelf life. I don't know. I mean, it could be proved wrong. <laughs> it could come back on TV, who knows? Um, but I always felt the Iron Legion had a higher profile. Um, and I'm thinking back to how, how I approached the Star Beast. I think the big thing for me was I wanted that down-to-earth quality, which is now so apparent and so obvious and so perfect for Doctor Who, thanks to Russell T. Davis, because he had, you know, in, in his um, uh, first... Uh, uh, seasons on, on, on Doctor Who. He had these wonderfully down-to-earth characters. But as you doubtless know, that wasn't really how... Th there was a period where I think it was becoming... And I won't name any particular <laughs> dramas, otherwise you know, your, your fellow fans will be saying, that's not true. But there were periods where it became a bit elitist. The science fiction plots became rather convoluted. And as I say in page turners, there was definitely at that time a period where, what should we say, it, Doctor Who had a kind of middle-class tone. And all that disappeared with Russell T. Davis. And uh, I hadn't realized how I foreshadowed this kind of thing because I had, uh, what was it, Sharon, uh, who was uh, uh, yep, very much Hodge. a Grange Hill character. I was a huge fan of Grange Hill. And I always thought it was going to lead to huge changes, perhaps at the BBC and perhaps in media generally. And I, 
brilliant as it was, I think it was ultimately, you know, a, a cul-de-sac, which is a great shame. So you can see elements of Grange Hill, and it doesn't sound particularly sensational now, but it was pretty unusual at the time to have a, uh, a black companion for, uh, for the Doctor. And uh, I, my, I mean, they never really spelt it out, but I always got the feeling that the um, publishers at, uh, was it Doctor Who Weekly then, I don't think they were particularly enamored of that approach. You know, that down-to-earth approach. I, th I think maybe because they were marinated in, what should we say, Marvel comics, or, um, or perhaps the more ethereal Doctor Whos. I don't think they liked the approach in Starbeast, and uh, the evidence for it is twofold. Firstly, after John Wagner and I had uh, completed our run on uh, Doctor Who, she changes from a Grange Hill schoolgirl and she's wearing a superheroine outfit. And it, it's, it's just wrong. It's just utterly wrong because the whole thing is she's very much like, say, Rose. She's, a, she's an ordinary young woman. And, and that's what we want to see. We, we you know, it, there's room for escapist female companions elsewhere, but that hurt for me. I was probably a little fragile. In fact, actually just talking about it, I realized I still am fragile on the <laughs> subject, uh, which is a bit scary after all these years. And the other thing, of course, was that they had such a low opinion of uh, John and I as writers that as sales of Doctor Who Weekly inevitably shrunk, because you always start off with a high sales figure and then it comes down. It's got nothing to do with the, the product necessarily, but sales are always always come down. And uh, so they they wanted to cut our page rate, our script rate. They didn't want to cut the artist's uh, script rate. But I thought, well, you obviously value the Star Beast and um, the Iron Legion and uh, John's story, City of the Damned and, and the werewolf thing he did. You obviously value them so little that you want to cut our rates. You think you think the stuff can just be knocked out. So John and I left, and it's a great shame because I mean we really enjoyed uh, writing uh, Doctor, especially with Tom Baker as the as the uh, as the Doctor. And if if they hadn't done that, uh, who knows? We might have been writing uh, Doctor Who for. Uh, for, for, for years to come, and um, in fact, as I was writing the, the, this thing up on page turners, I, uh, I, I realized there were all these other Doctor Who stories I still want to write. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know, it's, uh, there's so many people who want to write Doctor Who. Uh, so I just included uh, roughly the, the, the scenarios on because I've got so many other things to do. And I don't know if I can really face the torture of <laughs> submit, submitting stuff, whether it's for a comic or an audio play or God help us, uh, TV drama. But th there were just so many possibilities. And um, I realized I haven't actually got Doctor Who out of my system. I mean, when, when it's transmitted in, what is it, about a week or so's time, I don't know what effect it's gonna have on me. I mean, I'm sure it's great. But uh, uh, Dave, Dave Gibbons has already seen it because he went to the um, uh, premiere in, uh, in London. And it sounds like a fabulous event, but 
Uh, I live in Spain and I really couldn't, I couldn't, I thought about it, I thought about it long time, I thought, I cannot justify this, you know, sort of flying over for the premiere and then flying back. It's, I thought, no, no. But anyway, Dave, Dave loved it and I'm sure I will. And, uh, but whether it will have me thinking, oh, I must, I must write something else on Doctor Who, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. I'd imagine then when the first contact came, and I know you can't talk about stuff, but was it a bit of a surprise when you got the the contact say we'd like to adapt it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think I can talk about that a little bit because I think it's been um, foreshadowed in um, Doctor Who magazine. Uh, they've written about it uh, there. So I, I think it's fair to say, yeah, I was... Uh, and of course, Russell T. Davis was wonderfully complimentary about the story. And uh, I mean, wow. And he was, uh, when, when, he, uh, when he wrote, wrote to me, and uh, I, you know, it, it's strange because you think, there's all these stories I've written over the years. And for this particular one to have resonated so strongly with yourself, with Russell, with David Tennant, you think, what was the alchemy there? And how I done it some, you know, is it there somewhere else? You know, what's so special about this particular story? You know, is it just a case perhaps of being in the right time, you know, the right place and so on? Just as for example, on the space well, there was the wrong time, the wrong place and everything else. So that's just a kind of karmic balance there. What goes around comes around. But uh, yeah, you know, I think of, because that's the other thing as well to remember that, you know, and this is the, is it the curse of British comics and British science fiction? I don't know. We have to write really quickly. We're like pop fiction writers in a way, you know what I mean? Because uh, in order to make a living, because generally speaking, the money isn't good and uh, often there's no repeat fees. And, and this was certainly the case with, uh, with Doctor Who. So you get used to writing really fast, which is, imagine, I imagine, is what the um, pop fiction writers did. And you often don't get feedback from your audience. Now, it's wonderful to have that now, but I don't recall at the time anyone really having much to say Certainly about the Star Beast. I think Iron Legion resonated because, hey, it's such a Star Wars idea, isn't it? You know, the Roman Empire spreading out into the galaxy. It's such a scary thought. So you don't really get a chance to step back from your work and say, what was that all about? Was that good or was that bad? And what could I have done? Because you're on that treadmill, which is not altogether a bad thing because it means you you think on your feet a lot of the time. You know, you're, you're, you know, you're looking around you constantly for material, for story. So, for example, if I was in a, and I, and I still am. So, if I'm in a bar in here in Spain and I meet someone who's a bit of a character, I'm going to be following them around with my notebook. You know what I mean? It's uh, so, uh, but you don't get that retrospective feeling. So, it's really nice to be talking to you today and to, you know, be absorbing this feedback uh, from Doctor Who fans and to realise this really made a difference to, to a lot of you. And 
And of course, that is part of what I do. I, I don't write stories to, um, what should we say, endorse the status quo. I think it's fair to say that nearly all my stories have something which challenges the status quo in some way or another. And I guess in the case of Star Beast, it's making the point that all is not what it seems because we, we're so taken in by, what should we say, propaganda. You know, we, where, where people and, uh, are presented to us as wonderful uh, characters and then we discover years later that they're, they're actually pretty awful people. I mean, there's so many examples, I don't need to, to give yes, them. Yes, I know exactly, I think, particularly uh, two examples you mean. Yeah, from 70s exactly. TV. Yeah. yeah, very much so. I think that's a, quite a subversive element in the Star Beast, and maybe that's one of the things that makes it stick in, in readers' minds, because it's fair to say that traditional comics, pre the era of John Wagner and myself, I think generally endorsed the status quo. They very rarely challenged it and said, well, actually, the status quo is corrupt or there's bad people in it or whatever. And I think, I think that's embodied, actually. I remember some years before writing Star Beast, I had an opportunity to write Disney comics. And um, despite my hunger for work, I still turned it down, which was remarkable for me because often I think, oh, God, you know, I, I need the money. I've got to pay the mortgage. The Disney contract basically said, from memory, it was a vast document, essentially owning your soul. But it said, uh, you can't make jokes about fat people, thin people, foreign people, people in authority. So, you know, these are all my usual targets. You know, so anyone who's, I don't know, a judge, a cop, uh, a headmaster, no, 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 that's, 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 so, yeah, I, I mean, could you see me doing that? No, <laughs> I, mean, I was thinking of all the things, I cannot see you being towing the Disney line and everything is wonderful, everything is awesome, everything is sweet, trust everybody in authority. It's no, not you, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and and, and I, I, I think I turned it down because I thought, I cannot do this. I really cannot do this. And very occasionally, I, I've had similar projects offered uh, gone in my direction and, and I have to turn them down because I know I can't write them with sincerity I think there are people who can and how they achieve that I don't know maybe, maybe they I guess if you believe in the status quo and the status quo has been good to you um, well why not but uh, that's not my life experience so yeah, uh, so it, 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 curiously, actually, the Disney contract, in a way, foreshadowed the, uh, what would you say, the, the kind of woke culture of today, some of which is absolutely valid. But the extent of it can also mean you cannot, you cannot cover certain subjects, even if they're satirical. So, so there was a lot going on beneath the surface of the Star Beast, I think, and... Um, and also, of course, the fact that there was a, uh, a black companion to the Doctor. I mean, that was, that was very fresh at that time. Uh, black people rarely featured in British comics at that time. And, and I brought them in with some pushback from the, the, the people in control. So that, that, was, that was different as well. And these wonderful 
aliens the wrath I'm not sure <laughs> i only wrote the word down so i'm not sure quite sure how it's going to be pronounced i'm i'm looking forward to seeing that i'm, I'm delighted to know that you said wrath because that's how i've always pronounced it in my head so and out loud when spoken so. okay. Oh, yes, there's a way. Now, I know you can't say much more, but obviously we'd love you to come back on and chat after broadcast. But we have one question that we need you to define this for us, because when I was discussing this with my friends Stevie and Dave, we were all under the impression for years that because of the American reprints, that the star beast itself was blue. So please tell us, when you conceived them, what colour was the meep? Right. Definitely white, definitely white. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm thinking back on that, actually, and thinking, I mean, you can see it in Dave's original art. I mean, it's, it, it hasn't got a half tone on it, which would tie in with it being blue. But also because Angela's airbrushed cute creatures were invariably white, white for innocence. So blue, blue is a little more ambivalent. And, uh, my understanding, and you've probably, you've probably seen both of them, you have the Marvel Comics uh, reprint, which uh, I think I've got a, a, a copy of, and uh, that has it, I think it's, it's blue there, and it's, um, it's, what should we say, it's a rather salty blue, because, you know, the newsprint, I don't know, the newsprint didn't do it any favours, <laughs> that's, that's what I felt. It, you know, it's much more suited to... Uh, X-Men or Captain America and, and this rather more subtle world of Doctor Who doesn't have that effect. But also, and I, I'm, I haven't seen it, but I'm guessing, I know IDW did these rather beautiful uh, coloured versions of the Iron Legion and I'm guessing they must have done Star Beast as well. So that, that and I remember looking at them and, and thinking just how beautiful they were. So it's possible that they did a, 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 an attractive coloured version of, uh, of Star Beast. But nevertheless, he's definitely white. <laughs> Brilliant. That's what we needed to know. <laughs> the crucial question, <laughs> the burning issue of the day. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Pat, for your time and sharing your insight. So I can't believe it. That's like unbelievable. <laughs> Pat Mills is on a bloody podcast. Jeez, oh. <laughs> yes, Kenny. Yes, I think that it's fair to say you and I love this strip. So do you remember when it was announced that Big Finish were doing the adaptation? Yeah, because there have been a lot of rumours for quite a long time about, about them doing so. I remember the most persistent rumours seemed to be that they were going to do the Fifth Doctor stuff, the Tides of Time. Um, but then it was announced that they were doing this. I remember actually talking to Will Brooks and how excited he was about getting a chance to do the cover. And, you know, by the miracle of technology, hopefully William will be able to join us now. I'm Will Brooks, and I was the cover artist for the Star Beast, the big Finnish adaptation. Will, we have a burning question for you. Myself, <laughs> Stevie and Dave have been chatting about the colour of the Meep. And we all thought he was blue, but then, of course, we get the big finished version. And in your cover art, he's a sort of greyish colour. How did you decide upon that cover? The burning question of the day. I have a feeling. I think he's white on like one of the American reprints, maybe. And when I made the meat for the cover, I sent it to the late and much missed Simon Hodges. And I said, what do you think? I think this looks great. And he just replied, he's the wrong colour. He should be blue. 
no, 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 no. And then I have a feeling when I submitted the cover, I think Jamie Anderson, the producer, came back and said, shouldn't the meat be blue? And by this point, I wanted to stick it to side. And so I said, no, 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 no. The meat is white, grey. And now, obviously, the Star Beast has been on telly and I feel vindicated. <laughs> Fantastic. So how did you create the meat for the cover? It was one of those things. When I first got the gig to do it, I'd heard through the grapevine somewhere that they were doing these adaptations. And I have a feeling I might have emailed you and said, who's producing? <laughs> um, and then I emailed Jamie and begged for the gig. And he sort of said, oh, yeah, that's fine. We need someone to do it. You, you know, I loved the comics. And then I sat here and I went, oh, God, how do you make the meat? <laughs> so he's a combination of things. He's mostly pictures of kittens. The feet and the hands, I think, are from an orangutan. The ears, I have a feeling, were from a dog instead of a cat. I think the eyes are a cat's eyes. It's lots of me messing about in Photoshop. And it went on for weeks and weeks to get it as close as possible because I wanted it to look right, you know. <laughs> he does. It's instantly recognisable as our beloved Meep. <laughs> oh. And how about the rest of the cover? That must have been good fun to sort of finding the images and building all that up. Oh, it was great fun. It was, um, we came really close to using some pictures of Tom that hadn't been used for decades, hadn't been seen for decades. And I had the covers pretty much finished and I loved them and I was really excited and the expressions were great. And then the person who owns the rights to those images was a bit funny about using them. And so at the last minute, I think literally two days before it had to be submitted, we had to swap out all the pictures of Tom Baker and I was gutted. But it was lovely to put it all together. And there was a point I'd wanted to put a newsreader on and Jamie had said, oh, we, we think it's going to be Angela Rickham. We don't know for certain. And then he emailed back a couple of days later and said, Angela Rickham is in. And I've asked, she's given us a picture. Do you want to put it on the cover? And it was like, of course I want to put it on the cover. And so whenever she's on telly now, I sort of pointed at it. I go, oh, I've worked with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, particularly given she's a current Strictly star, of course. So Exactly, yeah, and doing rather well. Yep. Oh, I don't watch it, but I'm told she's doing well, so, yeah. Oh, no, do I have to think like Yeah, but I think that <laughs> it's just that wonderful, it really captures that comic vibe, and particularly adding in, I take it you were told to leave spaces for the speech bubbles. No, that was all me. Oh, we, wow. I wanted to do the speech, but I, my argument, and in fact, Jamie was great. I love working with Jamie on things because he's really supportive and really receptive to ideas. And I think I said to him that I, if we're going to do comic adaptations, they need to look like the comics. And so I sort of said, like, I really want to put the speech bubbles on. I really want to make the point of that. And he loved the idea, but he wasn't sure that people higher up the chain, perhaps at the BBC, would be as receptive. So we submitted two versions. We did a version with and a version without. And luckily it came back and everyone agreed putting them on was the right choice. And I was very, very pleased. Oh, I agree. I think it completely sells it and it just it gives you that different feel to it and makes them distinct. Yeah, yeah. I feel, They feel different, I think, to a lot of big finished covers. They're definitely different to any of my other ones. They were great fun. 
Yeah. So how do you look back on it now, just all these years later, thinking, yeah, that's a good and happy with that? Very happy. I think they're probably some of my favourite Big Finish covers. The Star Beast one in particular works really nicely, I think. And there's a lot of things just about the whole set that came together. I think the colours are nice. As much as I moan about having to change the pictures of Tom, the ones we used are also nice. And I, I love that now the Meep is a part of televised Doctor Who. I can kind of show people and go, oh, I did the audio adaptation of this one. You know? And people will know what I'm talking about. It's not just us fanboys anymore. That's been brilliant. Will, thanks so much for coming on and telling us the truth all about the Meep's colour and more. Thank you. Thank you, William. God bless you. But yeah, so yeah, to further answer Kenny's question, I was surprised they committed to it because they'd already been doing some of the, the novel adaptations and the response to those was quite mixed. I remember how many times Mr. Briggs has said on the BF podcast how a lot of people shout and clamour for them, but they don't really sell very well. So I was kind of thought, right, let's see how the, the big the big Finnish comic strips adaptations turn out. Doctor, you are right now? So long as I'm wearing a lead corset. Were they really going to explode you, though? At any moment, we might have been blancmange. What? All of us? All of Yorkshire, quite probably. But why, Doctor? Duh, to finish off fair back there. <coughs> what I mean is, why would aliens want to do that to Meep? Just look at him. He wouldn't hurt a fly. He wouldn't even hurt an earthworm. I've been wondering that myself. The aliens seem to think I was on my way to Earth to help the Meep. But why call me his accomplice? Funny choice of word. Indeed it is. Rescuer, perhaps. But accomplice, well, that's not far short of co-conspirator. This doctor knows nothing. It would be better to keep it that way. I mean, it could be a case of the TARDIS mistranslating. Hey, up. Reckon Fairbag's got something stuck in gullet. Maybe we should turn him upside down. Give him a whack on his posterior. No! Thank you, Mrs. Hey? Meep! You said something! You talked! Yes, John! Your language is... Meep! Meep! Difficult for my alien tongue. But I have learned enough of it now to get by. I hope... That's brilliant! Doctor, I must... Oh, don't mention it, me, but perhaps you could explain to us why those other aliens want to blow you up. Fellas were pincers and tentacles. The last warriors, Meep, Meep! Yes, them, yes, them. It's not possible you've done something naughty. Don't be daft, Doctor. No, no, Sharon. The Doctor is right to wonder what they want with me, Meep, Meep. Stop your meeping and get on with it, eh? And I've got to be honest, I felt that the... Starbeast worked a lot better than Iron Legion. Iron Legion, I felt there was an awful lot of say what you see, dialogue and stuff, having to cover it, but Starbeast was a lot stronger and I think, you know, worked a lot better. I don't know how, how you both feel about that. Stevie, what's your thoughts on it? Of course, this is the only full version of Starbeast you've experienced. Yeah, I... It was like a warm hug, more or less instantly. I was straight into it. And, Dave, what you were saying about, you know, the Yeti on the Lou episode, that's that's what it was for me. I think that the fact you've got Tom Baker in there and he can talk to himself without sounding silly. He doesn't have to say, like, if Tom says, oh, hello, there's a door. I wonder what's behind it. You're thinking, no, it's just great to hear you talking. So <laughs> yeah. 
but I mean, he, I mean, you've seen the, you've seen the meme on the internet. You know, Tom Baker reads the phone directory. You know, it's that he he can read it and it'd still be fun. So, yeah, straight into that, straight into the voices, the narrative, the humour, and you've got a hit. You're straight in. Brilliant adaptation absolutely. by Alan Barnes. I mean, he's he absolutely knows the comics, and you can tell that he loves them. And taking what is a forty odd page, forty odd pages worth of strip and developing it into a good, what, 100, 110 minutes worth of audio yeah, drama. Into, into four full episodes. I mean, Alan Barnes is, is, can do no wrong in my eyes at the moment because he's been doing such a good job on the the comic strip this year, as we have discussed on an earlier episode, I believe. Yeah. Um, we're doing this by me as usual. Alan was absolutely the best person to do it because obviously he's worked for Big Finish for a long time and knows exactly how it works. And I was really, I mean, listening to it again the last few days, it was such a treat. Scenes and dialogue lifted wholesale, but also an awful lot of other stuff added in for extra context and extra drama. The unit presence is a lot bigger. Fudge, who basically disappears in the original comic version, vanishes from the last three, you know, issues worth. The last time you see him was when um, the, the Doctor's been sitting having tea with the Wrath Warriors around his, his mum's table. But Alan did the genius thing of involving him more in the climax of the, the audio versions. You know, so he dresses up like Captain Thunderflash. And I had to go and shoot... I, I, Call it the Mandela effect, but I could picture that so easily in my head that Dave Gibbons had drawn this. So when I read it again today, I was like, there's no bit with Fudge dressed up. I'd completely forgotten that this was Alan's invention. So I think what Alan's done is he's look, he's obviously objectively looked at the comic and gone, right, what else do we need to build on? What else, what else is a bit unsatisfactory? He thought, right, Fudge vanishes. We can do more with him. The guy they got to play Fudge is brilliant, by the way. He's excellent. And also... You know, the unit stuff is built up a little bit more as well, which works really well. And as as we've alluded to, you know, they got Angela Rippon to play the newsreader, which is just 10 out of 10. Yeah, brilliant. And, and the John Craven, John Craven reference. Yes. That's you know, right. That was brilliant. <laughs> we want Craven. Craven. We, we want Craven. We want Craven. That was hilarious. <laughs> so, um, listen, I can't believe it, but joining us now, it's John Craven. Only that's a YouTube channel exclusive. We're not putting it yeah. in the audio version. <laughs> I, was, I was about to add the outro would be, uh, thank you, John. And um, uh, have you got a calendar you're promoting this year? <laughs> um, I think that the casting of the Meep is also great because, of course, we actually had the return of the Star Beast in um, well, it was a, an annual, but also Big Finish had done a story as well. The ratings were... That's right. Longworth played Beep, but in this case we've got Beth and Dixon Bate, and very much in the Toby Longworth vein, sort of capturing that. Oh, poor Meep. Oh, Meep, Meep, and just she's brilliant. She really makes the character yeah. believable as being sympathetic. When she she captures that, they're like, oh, you know, Sharon, you know, I'm I'm so this and that, and then you've got the bit of music where what Meep's really thinking. Yes, yeah. and and you know that that swift change, and it's just is just delightful. And of course, me coming into this, I don't know that meat is bad. I'm suspecting so as we're going along. I'm thinking now this this could wrap up far too quickly and just be ordinary. Who? No, no, no. This is there's something more. And then as the change comes, I'm not upset. I'm I'm thinking this is this is good. This yeah. is good. That is amazing. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that at all because you know, obviously, having read it, I've always known about Beep being a bad yeah. person. Or, but that's amazing, Stevie. That, I had not yeah. thought of that for a second. Yeah, 
it's an excellent twist and it's 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 not I mean that's the thing I wonder how many people listening to this our conversation today haven't read it or listened to it and are coming to the episode completely fresh so we could be spoiling it to an extent we'd probably be care- should maybe be careful with some of the stuff that we sort of we'll have a spoiler warning at the start yeah no it's it's um it's a shame that so far they haven't done any more comic adaptations because on the strength of this one um especially the star beast you know i think they, they would work out very well i suppose they've just got to sell a certain point and i think it was a little bit more expensive than some of the other ones but yeah. it's very very good oh it's excellent i mean i think that great music from alistair Locke, using reusing his theme uh, for the meat and um, that's that sort of childlike nursery music which is featured as the theme tune for beeping friends in the ratings war which is free from the big finish website if you want to go and find it you'll Get on there in the big finish for free section. Stevie's writing that down right now. <laughs> and, I know I'm uh, going there right now. We'll see you in a wee minute, guys. <laughs> that was a Six Doctor story, wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah. Written by I Steve Lyons. A long time ago. Yeah. I have, I have heard it, but not for a while. I just think it's wonderful. I think it's. I'm just so excited that we're going to get. In fact, Miriam Margulies doing the voice is just. Yeah. Fantastic. She's. His flavour of the week, so it's um, it's gonna, that's that's quite good casting. I mean, we should talk. About, you know, it's interesting. You know, the anticipation thing is weird because on the one hand, tonight we're going to be going, hey, because Davy's back and oh, because Donna's back and all that. But equally, it's going to be huh, because we're going to be watching it with one eye, going, how closely are they adapting mm-hmm. the star? I'm going to sit here with my copies of, of Doctor <laughs> Weekly, going right, hey, uh-huh, tick. The doctor didn't say anything about going to Tennessee for Barbados or anything. That's not very good. With his maracas, yeah. What has Russell T. Davis done to Doctor Who? Because <laughs> uh, let's be honest, right? We've talked about Angela Rippon. We've talked about John Craven. You know, will will they will they use that Russell T. Davis device, which he used a lot when he was on Doctor Who the first time, of having real newsreaders involved? I wonder if Angela Rippon stroke Sue Lolly, whoever it was supposed to be in Doctor Weekly, maybe that was the inspiration for that Russell doing that. Well, Maybe we could talk about, uh, maybe it could be Trinity Wells just uh, on the news. Yeah. Good point. That would be very yeah. Russell. Get her back. She's, yeah. she's done big now, hasn't she? She was in a Captain Jack story, wasn't she? She was, yes. She was indeed, yeah. Lachelle Carroll, the actress, yeah. That was, uh, yeah. yeah. Good point. Good, good. Yeah, thing. I hadn't thought about it. Oh, mm. Mm. So, gosh. Right, listeners, because we're now all sat thinking, hmm, what else is going to be in the Star Beast tonight? We have. <laughs> I love Miriam Margulies. I, I've loved her in more or less everything I've seen her in. Be very glad. Be very glad that uh, it's all pre-recorded. This is. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first thing you saw? You saw her enough? For me, I think it was Black Adder. Uh, Black Adder, but there was something before then. I can't remember what it was because she did. She did a whole load of uh, Shakespeare stuff, didn't she? I think for the BBC, and I'm sure she had bit parts and stuff like that. Right. How long till there are edited clips of Beep saying absolutely <laughs> foul things that Miriam has said previously? I look yeah. forward to the interview with the Beep the Meep on Today programme. Yeah. One of those one of those Twitter guys that likes doing funny videos will do one before the end of the day, I'm sure. <laughs> it's gonna be very interesting because obviously this is you know, this is the third the adaptations of Spare Parts and Jubilee were quite loose, but obviously Human Nature, when that was done in 2007, was very closely inspired by the original. It's going to be very interesting just sort of having another story become, you know, unbound or being experienced by two different doctors. And, and it's um, 
It's very interesting. It's very, very interesting. Because, <laughs> of course, it'll be fun for David as well, because he'll know the Star Beast being a fan like us. Of course. I mean, I think he's, there was an interview with him in the new issue of SFX, which, as, on, as we record, I bought yesterday when it was published, um, and he, he talks about this sort of stuff, about being really pleased that because he knew the story. I mean, I, I can't believe that, you know, I can't believe you got Pat Mills on the podcast. Buddy! <laughs> oh. I'm raging that I wasn't that I wasn't available to join you just so I could go, Hi Pat Mills, you alright? What's happening? Well, I just I'm just very fortunate. I've got a lot of good contacts and people seem to chat to me because I'm nice to them. Can I ask a question? Because we've just we've just touched on two doctors in the yeah. Star Beast. I do this quite a lot when I'm looking at stuff and I try to work out who else could have fitted into the audio version as the Doctor? Now, you could have had anybody who was available, but would it have worked? Because I think there's only certain Doctors that that could work with. Tom Baker is one of them. David Tennant, no doubt about that. Season 24 certain... McCoy. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a brilliant question, Stevie. Um, I think Matt Smith, maybe? Yep, Absolutely. Season 24, Sylvester, but definitely not season 26, Sylvester. That's really good. I, mean, I, I don't really think anyone else, especially, you know, because it has a certain energy and Tom's perfect. For, it's obviously it was written for the fourth Doctor, obviously. And I can't imagine Troughton working in it very well or no. Jodie would be really good. I can, I, um, I can, yeah, I can, I can actually hear her in that. Yeah, I can hear her doing that. And the mixture of accents good. would have worked yeah. really well. Yeah, because they could have, you know, filmed it in Sheffield or whatever, and, you know, yeah. you know, fitted in and stuff. I can imagine some sort of uber cheap sixties version with with the first Doctor and maybe Stephen and, and Vicky or Stephen and Dodo and Stephen being suspicious, but Dodo being you know not so suspicious. Maybe even Ben and Polly actually would work quite well. Stephen and Vicky. That's an one. It might have worked as a unit in story during the seventies with John Z and Katie, maybe. Well, you, yeah, you can imagine Katie going, oh, it's so cute, yeah. and yeah. going off on that one. Don't you understand? I'm a human bomb! End of episode two. You know, that'd be quite good. Yes. <laughs> Give me some wine and some, some cheese and I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> think about it. <laughs> Come on, Pete, have, have some wine and cheese, old chap. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got to make that That's happen. what it was. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be sitting having cups of tea around Mrs. Higgins' kitchen table. She'd be breaking out the Chardonnay and... <laughs> yes. The port, yeah. passing, it to, passing it to That'd the left. That would be really funny. Um, <laughs> although, that said, the audio version, I've just remembered something. There's that throwaway line about Sharon's foster parents with the pampas grass outside. I guffawed at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing yeah. that's actually very interesting, of course, is that Sharon in the comic strip became a companion. Yes. First black female companion, which mm -hmm. is maybe one of the reasons why they, they made Fudge disappear, so that... And, of course, Sharon stays with the Doctor for a while and gets aged to adulthood over one, during yes. one story before eventually leaving. And it's that's that'll be interesting to see how that's kind of... Because, obviously, Donna's kid gets involved in the story tonight, so it'll be interesting to see just how much that sort of plays out. But there's going to mm -hmm. be lots to think about. I hope I don't get too distracted by comparing it to the original. I remember when Human Nature was first on that, you know, I was I was like, I'm doing it for the benefit of our YouTube viewers. I was almost right, well, that's different and that's different and you didn't go up to school and that, that's different and it was a cricket ball, not a watch and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, mm. 
So we'll see. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. Lots, lots to think about. Yep. Stevie, you are a fan of fudge. I'm personally a fan of chocolate fudge. I'm not so keen on the chocolate <laughs> fudge. What are your thoughts on him as a character? Here's a very, here's a very quick fact. Um, I a couple of weeks ago as we record my sister and I went to see the Manfreds as they played at the concert hall Mike Diablo the second lead singer of Manfred Man was the chap who wrote the jingle for the Cadbury's Finger of Fudge advert back in the 70s A finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat A finger of fudge is just enough until it's time to eat It's full of Cadbury goodness but very small and neat A finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat It's full of Cadbury goodness but very small and neat A finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat that's my fudge trivia. There we go. Okay. I, I also like that kind of fudge. Anyway, thing I want to say about Fudge, he's a great character and all the way through. And I'm glad that he got a bit more to do than you than he did in the, the cartoons and the, the comics. Because there's nothing worse, I said this before, there's nothing worse than being a character in a play up front um, and centre. But I thought the ending of of the audio was really sad. I mean, it was great for Sharon. You know, she got off to go off with the doctor, but she left Fudge behind. And, you know, he was getting these postcards and stuff. And I thought, it wasn't a bad ending. I loved the ending. But it was just, again, a little bit different ending there. And But it was nicely done. I, I'm not one for Hollywood endings and everything. You know, sometimes people yeah. change, people go, people leave, people die. And sometimes that's what makes a, a good story. I think that really added to the good the good story and great rounded character of Fudge. That's fair, yeah. Another change that I noticed was canine being removed, obviously for probably for financial reasons from the audio because you need to pay Copyright more paper. reasons, Kenny. I was not allowed to perform. <laughs> he was that was very good. I think Affirmative. Uh, <laughs> it's, they, they kept him out for YouTube that. YouTube viewers will see me in all my prime. <laughs> I imagine K9 would have his own YouTube channel. It'd be really good. I mean, that's that's obviously another change, but you know, I, I want to just echo further what Stevie was saying. It was it was really quite effective. It kind of reminded you. Do you remember that Spice Girls video when yes. the kid trapped in the thingy and goes back up into the giant fruit machine and the other kid what, and their friends gone? It reminded me a bit of that. You know, it's a very bittersweet sort of thing. And I think, to be honest, to tie back into what Kenny just said, I don't think it really suffers from K9 not being involved because he's only really in the first part or so of the story in the comic just so he can be written out you know he's just there to get shot and, and, and damaged so it's I don't think it was it did it any harm no there's I mean there's a few obviously he gets his programming mixed up and he turns into a cat and all he says is purr and hiss for the rest yeah. of after that so yeah it wasn't in any way a hardship losing him My like fifth, that yeah I, I love K9 but there's times when he just has to disappear for the sake of the story and bring him back. Do you want to know my favourite word in the entire audio thing? Yes. Can you guess what my favourite word is? It's pronounced in many ways, but uh, when one of the Wrath Warriors, he's a Wessock. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, yeah, it's course. just brilliant. The way they use that, because uh, Sharon says yeah. it, they overhear, and then they misuse it a couple of times, and yep. that yeah. always who, makes me laugh. Who is it plays Sharon? Remind me, who plays Fudge? Do we have their names handy? So Sharon is uh, Rianne Starbuck. Right. And Fudge. 
and the unit corporal is Ben Hunter. All right, okay, brilliant. Well, they were both fantastic. A few more box sets of both of them would have been quite nice, to be honest. Fudge a brilliant character. He's sort of, sort of character that they didn't have on TV at that point, you know, because mm. the Doctor's companions have been, you know, outer space leather-clad warrior Leela and then outer space Time Lord Lady Romana. So there was no real audience identification figure at that point, and Fudge really brings that sort of thing back in. He's much better than Adric for that sort of thing. You know, God, can you imagine if Fudge had been blown up trying to stop the Cybermen? That would have been so depressing. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. oh, that's a that's a scary thought. That's that's interesting because you think um I mean you tend to think nineteen seventies there were so many shows around, you know, like your likes of your tomorrow people and just sort of like children's film foundation stuff being shown all the time. Uh you know, things like uh Glitterball and things like that. And it's so yeah. it's very easy to imagine Fudge as sort of being of that ilk. Yeah. That's that's another really good good sort of comparison actually like you know there's an awful lot of Friday film you know you remember when children's BBC showed them in the 80s as Friday film specials that's what I always call them talking pictures show them quite often now as well because I had the Battle of Billy's Pond recorded for a couple of months quite a lot of them make proper Doctor Who's you know they're just concerned with the right sort of plotting and just enough jeopardy that you know the kids are going to enjoy them why did the Children's Film Foundation not take over production of Doctor Who in the, the early 80s that's what I want to know anyway just think who could have ended up with as the Doctor, you know, because they got some amazing cast in those, didn't they? They had... Um... Oh, yeah. Patrick Troughton's in one, and loads of people... Keith Jane's in a couple. Loads of people that have been in Doctor Who turn up in... Yeah. Didn't Patrick Troughton play some sort of elderly time-travelling gentleman, some sort of... Yeah. Professor Wagstaff. I think it was called A Stitch in Time. That's the one. I could even sing the tune, but I'm not going to. Oh. Maybe we could play out with the theme tune from it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the most compelling Troughton acting I've ever seen was the Box of Delights. Oh, interesting. I, I mean, that that was that showed his his range. Always remember that. Mm. I have. Do you know, I haven't watched it for a few years? This might be the first. You know, I might dig it out again and start watching it again soon in the build up to Christmas. That's a good shout, actually. Yeah. Have you heard anyway, the big finished version with Derek Jacobi? No, no, because it was really expensive. <laughs> okay, well that that's a quick it was like easy answer. Quid, so I was just like. Guy, and they put it out really. They put it out in the middle of summer. It's like, guy, on. You heard it. I have. It's very, very good. It's right. it's what you'd want it to be. There's you know, things that are in the book that never made it into the TV version, and yeah, it's it's very enjoyable. And obviously, big finish writer Roy Gill uh, is. I mean, he's he knows everything about the Box of Delights and all previous versions and things like that on right. radio. So it's yeah, it's it's a real favourite and. Um, Beautiful soundtrack ah. as well from Roger Lynn. So, final thoughts then, everybody, on the Starby Stevie. Excellent. It's a go back to. I listen to it regularly. Uh, if I'm driving in the car, I need something that's going to entertain me. I go back to that. It's going to be difficult to watch tonight because, as Dave says, I'm going to be you know comparing it with whatever. I haven't inflicted it on the rest of the family. They know nothing about it. So I thought I'd just let them go straight in. And I, I will enjoy for what it is because I know they will have updated it. And maybe my first watch, it's a bit like going to see uh, Star Trek films when they were coming out the kind of latterly before the final original Trek. You wanted the film to be good and you wanted to go to the cinema and you wanted everyone to love it. And by the time you're sitting through Star Trek V and you're thinking, oh, I really want this to be good. You're concentrating so much on you want it to be good, you don't enjoy it. So. Right. Sometimes I find I watch this kind of thing and 
I haven't taken it all in, so it's going to take a couple of viewings for me to be a firm favourite. But I think because I love the story, because I love the concept, because I love the actors involved, Oh, how long is it, Kenny? How long is it till it... <laughs> well, it depends when people are listening, doesn't it? Well, okay, yeah. let's let's just assume you've released it. What time are you releasing it? Midnight, as always. At midnight tonight, <sighs> this planet will be listening to this episode. Yeah, well... So, we're recording this on, what, the, the 3rd of November? Yeah. So it's, what, three weeks? It's over three weeks after we record yeah. this before we get to watch it. Goodness me. Final thoughts then. It's one of the arch- it's a proper solid archetypal Doctor Who story. Brilliantly structured, brilliant concept at the heart of it. It can't fail, so it's gonna be really good to see how it turns out tonight. Very excited to see the story, but really, really excited to have Davy back. Can't wait to see him. Yep. I echo everything that's been said. I mean just think you're in the hands of Russell T. Davis. It cannot go wrong. Surely it can't go wrong. No, he's <laughs> he knows heart, he knows people, and he writes great people's stories. So yeah, let's see how it goes. And yeah, I mean we've obviously we've seen clips of like the who's that skinny man and things like that in the in the kitchen. Just think that's yeah, just these things. It's going to be fun. And how they yeah. how they explain Donna getting her memory back. It'll be interesting. I have theories, but uh, I will save them. I don't want to spoiler it, just in case I'm right. Good shout. Good shout. There we go been good fun tell you what we should do after it's aired we should be reconvening and we could discuss it tomorrow cool yeah 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 yeah, yeah. That's so I've, got, a, I've got to take notes that's a brilliant idea so we're gonna have to right yeah have to factor that in won't we right cool <laughs> can we get can we get angela to join in depends if she's please. still in strictly doesn't it please please can we that'd be cool and now it's time to say goodbye. We're not playing out with that. So I'm going to say thank you very much for listening, everybody. Enjoy Doctor Who when you watch it, whatever you watch it, however you watch it, whether you're on Disney or on the BBC. And I'm sure it'll be fun. Also, one other final thought. In the original comic strip, we've got Stan Lee presents Doctor Who. Of course, Stan mm, Lee, wow. Marvel, Marvel, owned by... Disney. Disney. So there's a connection there. So it is. Stanley presents. That's hilarious. So it was, always, it was always meant to be for our people overseas. Not for us in the UK, of course, but there we go. <laughs> anyway, I've been Kenny Smith. Thanks for listening and watching. I've been David Steele. Listeners, I will encourage you to check out this week's episode of the Earth 2 podcast. Kenny's on it, would you believe? It's Peter and I's own little tribute honouring Doctor Who and its 60th anniversary. I won't say any much more than that, but Kenny's in it. He plays two parts in this episode. Um, some of the people who helped us out with our Seven Soldiers of Victory story during the summer have also joined us, and Pete and I are on it as usual, so be sure to check out the Earth 2 podcast. If you haven't had enough Kenny to listen to this month already. And enough, Dave. <laughs> and I have been K9 and expecting my reward, Kenny. And uh, I'll just pat him gently. Okay, man, just just go go over there and back into that trans-dimensional safe. Yeah, yeah, just lock it. Lock it. Yeah, yeah, lock it. Thanks. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Day. Kenny, what are we playing out with today, then? Well, we've been talking about Beat the Meep. And uh, I mentioned earlier on that he appears in a big Finnish story where he has his own TV show, Beep and Friends. So I think it'd be appropriate to play out with the theme tune from Beep and Friends. Excellent. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Goodbye. 
dance and we play with joy we gush as our dreadful song turns your brain to mush join the fun and you'll see soon you'll agree you are beep's friend after all ask your neighbor around for a bite and a drink then nibble off his face till he's raw and pink enjoy his surprise as you suck out his eyes you are beep's friend smash them all Put your dog in a blender and close the lid Cut your hamster to pieces to feed your kid Slice the fur from your cat, deep fry him in some fat You are Beep's friend, kill them all Red and red and kill them all Kill them They beg for their lives, use the pliers again. No need to ask why, do it for the most high. You are Beep's friend. 